Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. So in my last episode, 20, I shared the life and stories of Gertie Baskerville, who lived alone in Algonquin Park for over 35 years on South Tea Lake near the Smoke Creek Bridge. Though I'd suggested in that podcast that there were a few full-time residents, I realized later that I had said that based on an early 2000s sensibility. In fact, there are all kinds of stories that I have of families trying to make a go of it off the land or who had jobs with the park or with the railway that required or enabled living in the park. This was both early in the Algonquin Park's history and even before it was created. This, of course, got me pawing through my notes to uncover what stories that I had. So in this episode, I'm going to share what I know about five different families. The Dufons and the Denisons, who farmed in the area before it became a provincial park in 1893. William McCord, who was the station agent for Rock Lake Station. Billy Bach, who also lived on Rock Lake and was the caretaker first for the flex of the J.R. Booth Railway fame. And also of Rock Lake's Stuart Eady, who was a park ranger in the 1940s. Key references for this episode come from Audrey Sanders' The Algonquin Story, my own research for my book Rock Lake Station, S. Bernard Shaw's Lake Opiango, and of course, one of my favorites, Rory Mackay's Algonquin Park, A Place Like No Other. Except for Shaw's Lake Opiango, all of these titles are available from the Friends of Algonquin Park in-person or online bookstores, which can be found at www.algonquinpark.on.ca. As best as I can ascertain, interest in settling in this part of Ontario happened as a result of two intriguing factoids. One was the fact that in 1829, when Alexander Sheriff, quote, whose father was a land promoter, cruised through the area to find out if it was practicable to bring immigrants into the Ottawa-Huron tract for the purposes of establishing farms, unquote. He reached Cedar Lake, declared that the soil in this tract was good enough for agriculture, and its considerable elevation and pure waters ensure it as being unsurpassed by any other section of the country in the important requisites of healthiness. In the latter, he was, of course, absolutely right, as we all know, but in the former, a dismal failure, though it did take decades for that to be figured out by the many poor settlers who tried to eke out a meager existence in the area. The second factoid was, as shared by Audrey Saunders in her book, Algonquin Story, quote, a firm conviction of government and people alike in the 1850s that once the forest was cleared of its timber, a large percentage of the area where the park now stands would be available as farming land for prospective homesteaders. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had a really hard time understanding whilst driving across the park on Highway 60 how anyone could have perceived that this area, with all of its hills and rocks, would even remotely be suitable for agriculture. And even worse, I try to imagine what it must have looked like or could have looked like if they had successfully eliminated all of the trees. In order to enable access, a set of key roads were planned. One, of course, was Young Street that became today's Highway 11 north of Lake Kuchiching through Bracebridge, and eventually as far north as North Bay. 
Another was a road more or less running north from Bob Cajun, which was routed around Lake of Bays to meet the Muskoka Road near Huntsville. And lastly was the Opiongo Colonization Road that ran from the Ottawa River and was eventually surveyed as far as Lake Opiongo in the park. On my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, I've posted an image of one of the early colonization road maps for those who are interested in seeing where some of these original roads were located. The first collection of land-hungry immigrants followed the lumber trade towards the park from Ottawa. They established what were called depot farms to provide potatoes, oats, butter, beans, and other types of staples for the growing number of lumber camps who were obtaining timber cutting rights around what eventually became Algonquin Park in 1893. In a later episode, I'll talk about some of these farms that were established in and around the Madawaska area in the 1870s. But by the 1880s, it finally became clear that most of this land was just not suitable for farming, and survival was only possible in the winter with supplemental earnings, either as trappers or working in the lumber camps, or as working as teamsters. There were, however, two farming families, the Denisons who settled at the Narrows on Lake Opiongo and the Dufons who settled in the north. To say that these folks weren't courageous is definitely an understatement. In the 1871 census, Amable Dufon of First Nations ancestry, and after whom the Amable Dufon River is named, was farming near Kiosk. His extended family at the time included his hundred-year-old mother, his wife, and ten children. According to a later visitor, the Dufons had been hunting and trapping in the area for generations. This is likely true as references to the Dufons are found both in notes by surveyor Duncan Sinclair, who wrote of Amable Dufon's sugar bush in his 1847 survey, and Alexander Sheriff, who noted, quote, a hunting territory of Map Dufon. By 1881, the family moved to the north end of Merchant Lake, where they established a farm that yielded hay, potatoes, beans, turnips, and oats, which they sold to nearby logging operations of William McKay and J.R. Booth, who were cutting square timber and saw logs, respectively, at the time. The farm had a large log house, a barn, horses, cows, and poultry. In 1888, brothers Ignace and Francis Dufon were granted patented land by the Department of Mines, which enabled them to stay once the park was created. The Dufons were admired by everybody, and Ignace's wife Suzanne was well known in the area. Her superior skills in the preparation of animal hides, that she would turn into soft and pliable leather for multiple uses, including the making of mitts and moccasins, was admired by all. She was also an expert in making maple sugar, producing as much as 300 pounds in a good season. She also loved to make and give gifts, especially for children, and would make special birch bark molds as containers for them. Suzanne was also a pipe smoker, unusual for a woman at the time, and in her later years, park ranger Pete Ranger told stories of visiting with her and sharing a pipe sitting astride the woodpile. Alas, Suzanne also had a reputation of becoming, quote, mad like a bear, if she ever had anything to drink. I'm not exactly sure what that expression means, but I presume it means keep a wide berth when she's in that state. One tragedy of Suzanne's life was a story that Saunders recounted about Suzanne's daughter, Pinonique, adopted by she and Ignace as a baby, Suzanne doted on her and went out of her way to protect her from the outside world. 
According to Peter Ranger, she was not bad-looking with straight dark hair. Alas, one year a good-looking teamster named Baptiste came to help with some work on the farm. One day he headed off into Mattawa, and to Zan's surprise and grief never came back. Later that night, Pinanique also disappeared, and a being of age about twenty years old, as the story says, there was nothing that either Suzanne or any authorities could do. Alas, Suzanne was inconsolable, and until the day she finally had to leave the Manitou farm, she kept all of the pretty things that she had bought for Pinanique. Suzanne hung on after her husband, Ignatius, and her brother-in-law, Francis, died, but eventually she was forced to leave and sold the farm in 1917 for $1,000 that was paid out in monthly $75 installments. Though no buildings exist today, the clearing is still visible on the north end of Manitou Lake. Born in Penrith, England in 1799, Captain John Dennison had a military commission and helped with his family's distillery and brewing business in England. But the call of the wild captured his imagination and with wife Anne and three young children, Mary Elizabeth and John Jr., he arrived in Quebec City in 1831. Later, two more children arrived, Henry, known as Harry, and Anne. During the 1837 Lower Canada Rebellion, Denison distinguished himself while serving with the Beach River Volunteers. Achieving the rank of captain, he was moved to Montreal and demobilized in 1839. While in Montreal, Denison's wife Anne died, and in 1852, he moved the family again to Bytown, today's Ottawa, where he ran a distillery for four years. Still attracted by the idea of land ownership, he received a land grant and settled at a spot up the Madawaska River at what became known as Denison's Bridge, where he kept a stopping place. For those unaware, stopping places, also known as roadhouses, were places where teamsters or others heading to and from the lumber camps could stop overnight and obtain food and accommodation for both themselves and their horses. In 1862, the spot was renamed Combermere and is located about 10 miles south of Barry's Bay. After watching the planning for the Apiango colonization road unfold and hearing glowing accounts of the agricultural potential of the area, he decided with two of his sons and their wives, Elizabeth and Ellen respectively, to open up land at what they thought would be the end point of the Apiango line. They, of course, envisioned hotels, mills, and toll bridges, which, as we already know, were not to be. The Denison clan cleared land on either side of a small, already cleared area called the Narrows that separates the east and south arms of Lake Apiango and called their homestead Sunnyside. Denison's daughter and husband, John Hudson, took over the managing of the hotel in Combermere, which today is called the Hudson House Restaurant. This previously cleared area was thought to have been a summer camp for the First Nations and according to Alexander Sheriff, at one time had been the site of a Hudson's Bay trading post. Though the stories of a summer camp checked out, no evidence of a Hudson's Bay trading post was ever been found in the Hudson's Bay archives. Nevertheless, one wonders how on earth did Denison's ever actually got there. Well, the colonization road apparently went as far as Bark Lake in the late 1800s, and from there they traveled up the Madawaska River, across Victoria Lake, and through the chain of lakes from there to the Apiango River. In the winter, they walked the horses and the cows in via the ice roads that were built across the lakes. According to a Denison grandson, 
Over the years, the family were able to clear and farm close to 120 acres of fields. The farmstead included a storehouse on the top of the hill, a mill house down by the spring, a barn and stables, a large woodshed, and a cabin with a magnificent view of Abiango Lake. Captain Dennison, it seems, was far more interested personally in trapping than in farming, and set up a trap line in the surrounding area. The story of his mauling by a bear in 1881 goes something like this. At the age of 82, setting out one day with his eight-year-old grandson, Jackie, the two came to a bear trap that the captain had set on the Green Lake Portage. As told by Saunders, chained to the far side of a great log and baited with rotten meat, the trap was skillfully set. Hearing nothing as he approached, the captain mistakenly assumed that the trap had not been sprung. But just to make sure, he cautiously stuck his head over the log to take a look. Just then, an enormous bear, whipped into fighting madness by the pain of the steel clamp, leapt at him, clawed him and dragged him over the edge of the log. The old man screamed but was powerless in the mighty grip of the great beast. He called out to Jackie to go for help. The little fellow rushed down to the canoe at the end of Green Lake Portage and paddled the long 11 kilometers back to the farm as fast as he could. When he got home, he found that his father, Harry, had gone on an overnight hunting trip and there was no help to be had. Days later, when he and Harry returned to the spot, they found evidence of a terrific struggle. All of the old man's clothes, but his boots had been ripped to shreds. Both he and the bear were dead. They carried the captain's body back to the farm and buried him in an enclosed or split-rail fenced grave behind the barns, which could be found as late as 1996. A later version of the story had Jackie waiting by the canoe at the portage with the instructions that if the captain failed to show up in two hours, that he should head home. That evening, his father Harry searched the shoreline to no avail, and it wasn't until the next morning that he found the trap. The bear was still alive, but the captain dead. Another version suggested that the trap line wasn't Captain Dennison's at all, but was one set by his son, Harry, and he'd been warned to stay away from it. In this version, the bear was still alive when Henry and Jackie and two other men returned to the scene the next day, after Jackie had raised the alarm. The bear almost got a second victim before it was killed. Later, two other Dennison young grandchildren, Jean and Edward, were buried nearby, under two huge white birch trees, just north of Dennison's grave. Jackie himself died at the age of 18, having accidentally shot himself while hunting moose. In 1882, the family abandoned the farm and returned to Combermere. The farm was then taken over by the Fraser and McGoshan Lumber Company and was operated for a while as a depot farm. For a long time, the clearings of the two farms were visible. Timbers from the farmstead were used to build the nearby ranger's hut, that you'll recall the Machado Party stopped at in 1903. Fast forward a decade or so. J.R. Booth, Ottawa Arnprior, and Parison Railway had pushed its way through the park. By early 1896, 30 camps had been built along the newly surveyed right-of-way that could accommodate up to 2,000 workers. 600 men with 150 teams were busy on the construction, with 50 new men being hired every day. Special trains delivered 150 tons of dynamite from the Ottawa Powder Works of Buckingham, Quebec, that was needed to blast the line through the Cambrian Rock along the route. 
The dynamite was stored in magazines built on the islands on nearby lakes. In the process of laying out the right-of-way, the surveyors came upon a natural glacier sand and gravel deposit that lay between whitefish and rock lakes, two lakes which at the time lay quite a bit south of the Algonquin Park boundary. This sand and gravel was perfect as ballast for the railway bed, so J.R. Booth hired William John McCourt, son of a Great Lakes sea captain named Captain William Honey McCourt, to manage the gravel pits during the railway construction. According to grandson Robert Taylor, the McCourt family roots in Canada dated back to the early 1800s, when a number of Irish Quaker families, including the McCourt family, came to Canada seeking a better life. They settled around Frenchman's Bay, Ontario. Born around 1837, Captain McCourt grew up to be a ship's captain and sailed many ships that plied Lake Ontario between Whitby and Kingston. The cargoes were mostly grain and lumber, which was carried to Kingston in ships with exotic names such as Lavina, Letitia, and Oriole. They would return to Whitby with limestone, which was used to build local buildings, including the Whitby Post Office. Captain McCourt also reportedly had a fleet of stone hookers, which were two-masted schooners used for gathering limestone from the floor of Lake Ontario. During the winter freeze-ups, the ships were hauled out of Frenchman's Bay, and Captain McCourt would spend the winter as a night watchman in the Whitby Town Hall. In 1862, Captain McCourt, at the age of 25, met and married a young girl age 15 named Sarah Wright. Together they lived and raised nine children in a large home at the corner where Brock Street, now Highway 12, interchanges with the Toronto on-ramp of Highway 401. For unknown reasons, the eldest son, Captain William's namesake, William John McCourt, known to all as Billy, had no interest in the sea captain's life and trained to be a telegrapher. So in the fall of 1896, when one of the railway's main contractors, D.C. MacDonald, announced to Booth that he'd, quote, have the rails laid between Whitney and Cache Lake by August, to the Gilmore Mills at Canoe Lake by mid-September, and the line finished in an additional two months, Billy decided to stay on. Quickly, he was appointed to be the station agent at the newly named Rock Lake Station. This was the first day station and had the Morse code call letters UF and was located just south of what is now the Rock Creek Bridge. This was milepost 156.1 from Ottawa. The station itself was an instrumented boxcar located on a siding near Rock Lake with living accommodation at the other end of the car. In mid-November, the line was officially opened for freight business by Andrew W. Fleck, who was the secretary-treasurer for the line. To celebrate, J.R. Booth hosted a special run from Ottawa to Potter's Lake, which was located about 80 miles east of Perry Sound. He invited 100 passengers, including members of Parliament, senators, and newspapermen, feeding them lunch on the way up and dinner on the way back. Attached to the rear of the train was Booth's recently completed Official business rail car, number 99, which he called up Yongo. It was on this trip that he earned from W.C. Edwards, a member of Parliament at the time, the moniker King of Canadian Lumbermen and Railway. On December 5, 1896, the then Prime Minister, Wilfrid Laurier, and Booth went on an inspection tour of the line that then opened for passenger traffic on December 21, 1896.
At the time, believe it or not, the return fare from Ottawa to Perry Sound was $14.85. And there was a special Christmas excursion fare that year of $5.50 to celebrate the Christmas season. The first regularly scheduled trains from the Ottawa, Arnprior, and Perry Sound Railway rolled through the newly minted Rock Lake Station on the new rails in January 1897. In 1898, letters patent for right-of-way and station grounds were finally officially granted to the railway. This was for nearly 30 acres in the vicinity of the station. For more details about Rock Lake Station, check out Episode 3, which takes you on a high-level walking tour of some of the historical locations, although now all of them are replaced by Rock Lake Campgrounds 1 and 2. The first railway foreman at Rock Lake Station was a man named John Frobel. Soon after McCourt's arrival, Frobel decided to build a one-room tar paper shack for his new wife, Audley Newman, whom he'd married in 1895. The shack was located on the south shore of the top end of Whitefish Lake, just east of the newly laid railway bed. According to Robert McCourt Taylor, the Newman family had come to Canada in 1884. The Baron, as he was known, had been an official for the German government in the 1850s, but was disgraced when he married below his rank to a woman he loved. He lost his government position and became a brick manufacturer, with a facility located on the German-Dutch border. For unknown reasons, he abandoned this business, came to Canada, and settled at Wado Station, a small station located just west of Pembroke. They had two daughters, Audley, who was born in 1871 and known as Tilly, and Ida, who was born in 1881. John and Tilly moved to the Whitefish Lake shack, which did have running water and coal oil lamps for light. Fellow railway workers would throw scoops of coal off the tenders as they went past, providing the Frobels with plenty of heat in the winter. John would shovel the coal into a large bin beside the shack for easy winter access. Many years later, one of the steam train locomotives derailed nearby and dumped its coal load down the embankment. It became affectionately known as the coal mine, where locals would retrieve a few hunks of coal for their Quebec heaters during the 1940s. Groceries were brought in by train from Whitney, and a cow was kept in a pasture nearby for fresh milk, butter, and cream for the Froebel family. In the summer of 1897, Tilly's younger sister, Ida, decided to come for a visit and met the dashing Rock Lake station agent, William McCourt. Though only 16 years of age, to his 29 years, she was instantly smitten and married him in 1899 in the little white Anglican church in Whitney. By then, there was a station house at Rock Lake Station, so the young couple lived there until Billy was able to refurbish a nearby log building. It was located across the tracks opposite the Gullard water stand that delivered the water that was needed by the locomotives from the nearby water tower. Ida and Billy used one bedroom, and later Ida's mother and father moved in with them and used the other. Later, while working for the Barnett Lumber Company, who were logging in the area of Rock Lake, a man named James Avery built a two-story square log house adjacent to Billy McCourt's log cabin. In 1903, after the Barnetts had logged out the area, the company had no need for the building and sold it to McCourt. This building became Shauna Lodge which, according to the McCourt family, meant happy times. Over the years, McCourt added an east wing and enlarged the veranda on the front and added a second kitchen out the back. 
The McCourts had three children, Oriole, Myrtle, and Vernon. As mentioned in Episode 3, for visiting friends, mealtime at Shauna Lodge was a five-star affair. After ascertaining the number of guests and the extent of their hunger, Ida would suggest to Billy McCourt that he meander up to the upper bay of Rock Lake to bring in a certain number of lake trout. Usually within half an hour, he'd be back with the precise number obtained. In addition to the pan-fried lake trout, the meal would consist of potatoes, peas or beans or carrots from the garden and the daily homemade Chelsea buns or bread. Naturally, dessert was blueberry pie with vanilla ice cream. Ida was very much against strong drink and frowned upon Billy enjoying a glass of good Canadian whiskey or scotch, so the beverage of choice was Rock Lake water. Billy used to hang a cup permanently on the stern of his disappearing propeller inboard yacht to sample the lake's finest when he was out on an expedition. In those days, the only way to keep things cool was to use ice. The local ice house contained three-foot-thick ice blocks packed in sawdust that had been cut from Rock Lake during the winter. For the local children, it was a marvelous treat to get the large ice chips to eat on a hot day. At about this same time, J.R. Booth had obtained water and timber rights for 7,000 acres of land around Rock Lake, east of the station. The area extended all the way up to Rose Pond and included the islands in the middle of Rock Lake and part of the west shore of Rock Lake. It also included Gordon Lake, where a boathouse was built to house a boat that was used when they were fishing in the area. Later, around 1911, when Nightingale and Lawrence Townships became part of Algonquin Park, it is believed that Booth exchanged this vast acreage for patented title to 700 acres on the western shore of Rock Lake. Unfortunately, after Booth died, he willed that all of his personal papers be destroyed, so the details of this transaction have been lost to history. As mentioned in Episode 3, what is known is that J.R. Booth's daughter, Helen Gertrude Booth, married his second-in-command, Alexander Walker Fleck, and with him had four children. Bryce, who caught tuberculosis and spent much time at Rock Lake, Gordon, for whom Rock Gordon Lake was named, who later took over the J.R. Booth Lumber Company, Rose, for whom Rose Pond and Rose Island were named, and Jean, for whom Jean Island was named. Note that according to Joan Barclay Drummond, Fleck's granddaughter, most maps of Rock Lake have the islands named incorrectly. She says, in fact, the larger island is Rose Island, and the one with a sand split is Jean Island. The Flecks built in the 1890s a large house that they called Menwate Lodge, meaning place of sunshine. Sitting on a mass of bedrock, the house had an enormous balcony surrounding the house on three sides, with a huge iron fire escape that hung from the second floor. Hired to help build it was Billy Bach, a carpenter by trade, who was married to Gertrude Bartlett, the daughter of Park Superintendent George Bartlett. After the house was built, Bach agreed to stay on as the property caretaker. He would meet the Flex when they arrived at their private Menwate rail station, which they would do in their own rail car, J.R. Booth's Opiongo. Until her death, when she arrived at Menwate, Mrs. Fleck would descend from the rail car and climb aboard a stone boat sled on which was nailed a wicker chair. Billy would take up the reins and the horse named Nellie and transport her through the woods to the house that sat by the lakeside, about half a mile away. Another Granny Fleck story and Billy involved a daily fishing expedition ritual. 
quote-unquote, when in residence every afternoon, weather permitting, would find Granny Fleck sitting in the stern of the happy hour, her lovely double-ender rowboat, on a wicker chair with the legs sawed off. Billy would row her around the lake, cigar in mouth. Three puffs and one spit were his routine with that cigar. The spit, because naturally Mrs. Fleck believed that she wouldn't catch anything until Billy had spat on her bait or on her tackle. There they discussed all sorts of worldly matters, while Granny, in her Dr. Locke boots, Queen Mary dress, choker, hat, and gloves, had her line baited and fish dehooked by Billy. I'm thinking that now might be a great time to take a musical break. So I have for you another great song from the Waccamai Whalers called Tom Thompson and the Seasons of Algonquin. It's from their 2017 album, Un, Deux, Trois, Four. If you like it, please check out their website at www.wakamiwhalers.com. It must be winter White expanse reaching for the distance Green and orange dot the plain Red clouds they billow overhead I sense the stillness I sense the pain Smile across this lake See what's there to see Smile along with all that's there There's so much to feel So much to feel and see It must be spring Flushing aspen hug each shoreline Vibrant pines can only flash their green Hand-cut logs floating down the rivers Early flowers popping forth They must be seen Sing with flying birds The flying songs are free Sing along with all that's there There's so much to hear so much to hear and see It must be summer Canvas tents and canoes along the shoreline Stands of white birch align calm lakes Jack and white pine call with a windswept whisper their granite rocks complete these northern scapes.
must be autumn This magic color takes hold of your brush Hillside scream of ochre, white and green A season where waters can be calm Trees, lakes and rocks must be felt and not just see Smile across this lake Collect what you can see Taste the waters and feel the trees It must be Algonquin My northern forest home In a time of early untouched grace Explore the many gifts you gave How many times has your smile Touched this face The seasons of this place By 1910, Rock Lake Station was a busy place. History indicates that up to six trains a day passed through, two of which were passenger trains. Over 120 loads of grain a day from the Canadian West would pass through during the summer. During the early years of World War I, the line was also used to transport troops to eastern ports. For everyone in the local area, the arrival of the train was a highlight of the day. Instantaneously, the train platform would become a beehive of activity with people, produce, and equipment coming and going on and off the train. As the local telegraph agent and the station agent, it didn't take Billy Long to realize that there was money to be made from this burgeoning tourist trade. So after the McCourt family moved into Shauna Lodge, McCourt turned the original log homestead into a grocery store and an outfitting store to cater to the new tourists. But Billy still had his job as the Rock Lake station agent, earning a dollar a day, and had to work seven days a week. So he convinced his daughter Myrtle to run the store for him. Billy was pro-education, so his incentive for Myrtle was that she could keep any of the American currency that the store brought in for her education. She was eventually able to earn enough to go to Queen's University, where she studied languages. Billy McCourt's store was one of the first, if not the first, outfitters of the day. He would rent canoes, paddles, life jackets, and camping supplies to visiting tourists. The groceries were several notches above other places, and ice cream a visitor favorite. Naturally, bait and tackle were available. As the local park ranger was later to report, I have heard many complaints in regards to the difficulties of obtaining fresh milk and the necessities of life. In fact, some of the tourists are threatening to abandon Rock Lake altogether. A store in a small way would be a great accommodation and would assist materially in making Rock Lake a more flourishing resort.
This must have happened, and by that I mean the idea that Rock Lake would become a flourishing resort, because one year a barrel of apples from the Niagara District arrived by express baggage. In it was a note from a special picker who asked for a return letter and advised them that the barrel had been specifically and specially picked so that each apple was exactly the same size. He must have had a special interest in Rock Lake, as he'd apparently taken an entire Sunday to pick the special barrel for Rock Lake in Algonquin Park. In 1915, the Ontario Legislature passed the Park Act that expanded the size of Algonquin Park to include eight new townships on the south and east sides. According to a map compiled and drawn by Ontario's Chief Geographer's Office in 1946, the two on the south edge of the park, Nightingale and Lawrence, that included the Rock Lake area, had been added in 1911, and the other six townships on the eastern side of the park, Edgar, Bronson, Barrow, Stratton, Guthrie, and Master, were added in 1914. Under the terms of the Park Act of 1915, the Ontario Department of Lands and Forests took over administration of the area. Its regulations, of course, forbid anyone to locate, settle, upon or use any part of the provincial park, exceptions being possible under quote-unquote regulations. In the short run, the point was mute as all of the settlers, i.e. the permanent residents of Rock Lake, were employees of the railroad and had built their residences on the property that had been patented by the railway. However, in 1915, the railway deeded much of that land, except that which was expressly needed for the train station, back to the government. The court thought Shauna Lodge might be useful to the DLF as a shelter hut and proposed selling his buildings, plus the 15 acres surrounding it, to the Crown. It's not clear if McCourt realized at the time that his house was not sitting on land to which he had title. Family lore suggests that before the park had been expanded to include the Rock Lake area, McCourt had filed a settler's claim for up to 200 acres, which included all land south of Rock Creek to Rock Lake, including the number one Rock Lake campsite, and back to the second ridge to the northeast. As those knowledgeable about Ontario land settlement policies will know, that when land was open for location, all squatters could enter claims to 200 acres of land upon which they were sitting. To get patented title, settlers had to clear 15 acres, erect a habitable house, and live in it at least six months each year for five years. McCourt's claim was denied, allegedly due to filing technicalities, but as the Department of the Mines wrote at the time, unless the railway has parted with some of these lands, I'm unable to see how McCourt can claim title. But the ongoing question is one of whether or not the department should take means to evict all of the people who are living at Rock Lake, or should they be allowed to remain there and occupy the house, which they claim upon their paying the department a reasonable rent. There is no question of their having any legal right to the land upon which they live, as the department has steadily and for years refused to entertain any applications for such use. However, we ought not to be too rigorous in dealing with the people who have squatted there before the territory was added to the park. It was decided that relationships with those on what was now Crown land needed to be worked out on a case-by-case basis. Eventually, McCourt's claim was reduced to a one-acre and a 21-year renewable lease that was eventually issued in 1921. The one-acre parcel ran 330 feet along the railway, including halfway up the hill behind the buildings. 
As use of land seemed more valuable than ownership at the time, this proposal seemed acceptable. To get around up and down the rail line, inspecting the tracks and making visits to park headquarters on Cache Lake, the railway provided hand cars purchased from Casey Jones Manufacturing Company. The railway, of course, wouldn't pay to add motors as they thought that motorizing these hand cars was a luxury that was not needed when pumping by hand would do the job just as well. But for the section men, a motorized vehicle was very desirable, but they were very costly, about a month's wages. An alternative was the velocipede. This was a three-wheel pump contraption with one wheel following the outer rail of the railway line. Billy Bach would often be seen tootling about on one that the Flex had bought and given him to use. It was a much improved alternative to the handcars. However, though not a section man, and with little need to go up and down the line, Billy McCourt would not be outdone. He acquired a Fairmont motor car, which was a platform with steel wheels and oak and wood spoke wheels that was run by a single cylinder gas motor. A belt drove a pulley on the front axle, and its top speed was about 10 miles per hour. Billy's grandson, Robert Taylor, can remember sitting on the gas car in the back shed on a wooden Salata tea box, thinking he was really somebody. As he recalled fondly in 2004, We kids had a special toy. We would put the old Fairmont gas car on the rails, and I was allowed to take all the local kids up and down a nearby siding. To go in reverse, the spark was cut, and if quickly enough connected at the correct instance, the motor would stop and go in reverse. Most of the time, we couldn't go on the main line, as the way was blocked by a speeder that was owned by the local Department of Lands and Forests. Once, however, the speeder wasn't there, so we decided to go for it and headed to Manwate Station on the Barclay Estate. It was great fun getting there, but when it came time to return, we found that the engine wouldn't go into reverse and we were stuck. We had to push it all the way back and paid a high price when it derailed as we got caught and were grounded for a week. Later, after the trains had abandoned the line in 1947 and up until the rails were lifted, the Fairmont gas car was also used by the McCourt family for many berry picking expeditions to the end of the line at Lake of Two Rivers. As Robert Taylor remembered in 2004, First, we would traverse the snake, where the line was washed out at Whitefish and the rails were suspended six feet above the water, and then we would continue on past the old Y. This was the place where the locomotives turned for the return trip to Whitney. The curve out in grade was so steep that the locomotives could only back in and would almost fall out of the lower leg of the Y if they weren't careful. A hand-thrown switch provided the route to the McRae Mill on Lake of Two Rivers. Unfortunately, there were only a few lengths of rail, so within a few hundred feet we would run through some alder bushes and off the rails into the mud at the end of the branch line. By 1927, McCourt had a nice little commercial business in operation at Rock Lake Station. In addition to the store and renting half of Shauna Lodge each summer, he also rented out the nearby buildings on what was known as the Barnett property to visiting tourists. These buildings, located across the tracks from Shauna Lodge, included what was known as the Barnett Cottage and an old warehouse built by the Jameson brothers that McCourt had fixed up. The Jameson warehouse was rented to some of the nurses from Ottawa in 1926, and the Barnett Cottage was rented to Leo Ebinger in 1927. 
Unfortunately, no portion of the resulting revenues ever made their way back to the government coffers. As unbeknownst to the renters, McCourt didn't have permission to use any of the Barnett buildings. Soon after this, one of the railway employees reported that he'd been paying McCourt rent for using the nearby meadow as pasturage. Apparently, at one point, there were five cows pasturing on the Barnett property for which McCourt had been charging a dollar per head per month. McCourt found himself by 1928 in a mess of hot water. McCourt's troubles had all begun a few years earlier when he'd been found tapping the government telephone line. His version of the story, as found in the government archives, went sort of like this. He had his own little telephone system between the store and the house, and that he'd connected his telephone with the government line for the purpose of calling the doctor at Whitney, and intended to, of course, remove the connection right away. Unfortunately, the department felt that his explanation did not at all suffice, as the ranger's cabin was but a stone's throw from his own house, and if an emergency existed, it was open to him to use without cost. The latest funny business was the last straw, and after much correspondence, McCord agreed to discontinue the carrying on of any mercantile business in the area, and could use the lease buildings for his own private use, and only for his family. In 1935, after many years of service and the passing on of Menwate to the Fleck's daughter, Jean Barclay, Billy Bock and his family left the Fleck estate and settled on his own commercial lease that he had obtained in 1929. Later known as Box Point, it was located just down the shore from the estate. There are no lease records of this transaction in the archives, so it may be that the perhaps Granny Fleck had provided Bach with title to the land upon which he built his various cottages and provided him with a modest pension for his many years of service. With his wife Gertrude, Billy had six children. He built three cabins on the site that he rented out to tourists at a rate of $65 a month, with $35 extra if the renter wanted to include wood and ice. He also later established a grocery store after McCord had been forced to shutter his and here he sold groceries, gasoline, and coal oil to the cottagers and milk that he obtained from the Barclays' cows. By request from the other cottagers, Leo Ebinger would hold a church service most Sundays when he was in residence at the lake. These would be held on Bach's front porch with music provided by a pump organ played by Bach's wife Gertrude, or his daughter Louise, who later became a deaconess, or even Ebinger's daughter Elizabeth. In winter, Bach would cut blocks of ice from the lake, aided by his son Johnny. The ice was stored in a community ice house that was located on Whitefish Lake, and many a leaseholder's son had a summer job delivering the ice to residents on both lakes. Johnny Bach later went to work for the department at Cache Lake and for several years lived at the Smoke Lake Hangar. As echoed by many of the Bach's tenants who went on to obtain leases in the area, Quote, what a wonderful place the box was for the three summers we rented one of their cabins, with its chicken coop, which was a great place for finding worms, the canoe trippers stopping in at the store to reprovision, and Mrs. Bach not wanting to sell any one person two of anything, just in case someone else arrived needing that same thing. The great sand beaches where we learned to swim and dive for clams, Blueberry Hill for berry picking, the jigger to hitch rides on once in a while in the old schoolhouse to explore. The railway tracks to test your balance on when you were out picking raspberries. 
Because of the need to educate his growing family, Billy Bach also worked to establish a school district and obtained revenue for the maintenance of a school at Rock Lake. The one-room school was opened in 1934 and was located behind the Bach cottages up by Rose Pond. It was part of the Halliburton School Board, and attendees included his son Johnny and the section foreman's children, and Mrs. Bach and later the park ranger's wife, Mrs. Edie, were the teachers. Because he was a skilled carpenter, Bach and later his son Johnny were often in demand in the 1930s and 40s to build cabins for the newly arriving leaseholders. In 1937, plans were designed to cut a road spur from the newly completed Highway 60 to Whitefish Lake and to establish a garage accommodation for a growing community of leaseholder summer residents. Though there was local support to have the road go to Rock Lake and an abandoned lumber road used to get to Whitefish Lake, park officials decided to build the road only to Whitefish Lake. The new access road did, though, create an additional new role for Billy Bach, Using a large 20-foot flat-bottom punt that became known as Box Pointer, he would transport goods and people to their leaseholds on both Rock and Whitefish Lakes. One new arrival to Algonquin Park in the early 1930s was Stuart Eady and his wife Beulah. The Eady family were originally from Horton, just outside of Renfrew, where Stuart was born in 1893. He married Beulah in 1915 in Eganville and later moved to Deakin, Ontario. Together, the Edies had eight children. Stewart's connection to Algonquin Park was an interesting one. As I mentioned in one of my episodes on poaching in the park, Stewart and one or more of his brothers would venture into the Algonquin Park area to do a little illegal trapping. One year they got caught and Stewart's life was forever changed. After a thorough talking to, Stewart, instead of being taken off to jail in Pembroke, was offered a job as a park ranger. This job he went on to hold for over 35 years, 23 years of which he was based at Rock Lake. One of the conventional theories at the time was that a fellow ex-poacher would be better able to, quote, ascertain the ways and means of their fellow poachers and therefore be better able to catching or stopping their activities. Edie accepted the job and his first posting was at Lake Traverse. Later in the early 1940s, he was given the territory from Rock Lake to Cache Lake, and the family lived in the former Double Railway Section House near Rock Lake Station in summer and in Whitney in winter. In the spring and fall, his son Eldon could remember catching the train at Whitefish Iron Railway Bridge and hitching a ride to go to school in Whitney. According to local legend, Beulah Edie was the only woman who could make bread, pump gas, and collect frogs all at the same time. Her blueberry pies and Chelsea buns were infamous in the local area. As a fellow leaseholder, Ruth Wella Mumphrey from Whitefish Lake fondly remembers, We called them sinkers because they were so heavy and yeasty, one would sink if one went swimming after eating two of them. But eat them we did. There would always be several missing from the box by the time we had paddled it back to the cabin. Beulah was also a community activist and during World War II joined with Mrs. Barclay to establish a Whitney branch of the Red Cross. Twice a week for five weeks, a group of leaseholders would meet sewing and knitting bandages and other needed articles for the war effort. They produced a record 480 items. Stuart Edie and his sons were also highly sought after by the newcomers for their cabin building skills. 
They helped Dr. Dunn, a dentist in Aurelia, build his cabin on the river. He had bought a Halliday ready-cut summer cottage, whose pieces arrived on a boxcar at Rock Lake Station. The Halliday Company sold ready-made kits that included all of the components needed to build a summer cabin. Everything from framing and rafters to paint, nails, windows, and roofing were supplied for a two- or three-bedroom, 20-foot-by-26 building. Lloyd Eady brought it over and assembled it for them. No expense was spared as the kit even included a three-piece bathroom with hot water, a water pressure system, and a septic tank. Another leaseholder, Robert Macbeth, was an architect, and he built over one winter a one-inch-by-one-foot scale model of a cottage that he wanted Lloyd Eady to build for him. The Eady brothers cut the logs for him on Louisa Trail and built cribs that were then filled with rocks and sunk. The lower level became the boathouse and the upper level became the cottage and hung out over the water. In 1940, Stewart and Beulah Eady moved into the old Rock Lake double section house. With its lathe and plaster walls, the section house soon became the center of the Rock Lake community. Cottagers would gather there for the weekly arrival of the meat wagon from Whitney. Beulah loved music and would organize dances at the Barclay Boathouse that were held every Wednesday and Saturday evening during the summers. She would hire bands and fiddle players from Whitney, and would sometimes do the square dance calling herself. These dances were great fun and attended by all of the local residents. Sometimes there were also weekly square dances at Cache Lake, and many of the lake's younger set would attend. Mary Eleanor Riddle recalls one dance where she and Marigold Merritt came home in the early hours of the morning, and there was a thick mist on the lake, as she recalled in 2004. Marigold was very concerned that we might hit the Russell swimming raft and made me steer out into the lake. After an eternity, I asked her to use the flashlight to see how deep the water was, and we were nearly at the beach on the other side of the lake. So we started to go back to the west side, and lo and behold, we nearly hit the swimming dock again. This time we kept very close to shore and probably woke all of the cottagers up on that side of the lake. 1947 saw the passing of Billy McCourt, and the lease for Shauna Lodge passed on to his wife Ida. Since Oriole, their son, had his own place, daughter Myrtle and her family used Shauna Lodge extensively. Myrtle had married Willard Taylor, a chief mechanical and electrical engineer for the CNR, who was responsible for the initial conversion of all of the railway locomotives to diesel in the 1940s. As mentioned several times previously, in 1954, a new park policy was introduced whose objective was to restore Algonquin Park to a more natural state. Included in the policy was an intent to buy back any existing private patented land that was in the park and as many leaseholders as possible. Not surprising, the first target was the Barclay Fleck estate. Eventually, an agreement was made that in 1955, the approximately 700 acres complete with all buildings, including the boathouse at Gordon Lake, became the property of the Crown. In 1955, Billy Bach died, and like the Barclay estate, soon after his cottages were acquired by the department and destroyed. The site was cleared and became Rock Lake Public Campground No. 2. In 1964, when the CNR returned the right-of-way for Rock Lake area to the MNR, they cancelled the station house license of occupation that the Edies held, and the building also was raised by fire. By then, Stuart Eady had long retired to Killaloo.
By the early 1980s, when both Vernon and Myrtle had died, it had become clear that the McCourt lease, sitting as it did right in the middle of the access way to the Rock Lake campground, did not fit the ministry's plans for the Rock Lake area. And alas, the tenants in common lease arrangement, which seemed such a good idea at the time, meant that upon her death, the full title of the lease transferred from Ida to Oriel, and no claims by the descendants of Myrtle and Vernon were recognized. Oriel was not willing to deed the lease to Myrtle's son Robert, and for whatever reason elected not to join the 1979 plan for common lease end dates. This meant that when their lease expired in 1984, the Taylors were told they were going to have to leave. They contested Oriel's handling of the lease and continued to use the property for three years past the 1984 termination date by refusing to leave. It was ministry policy not to burn down a place with chattels in it and a lock still on the door. After extensive negotiations in 1987, the final official position was that the park officials would consider renewing the lease, but only if the family paid three years back rent that was calculated at a base of $10 per foot per year for the original 330 foot of railway right-of-way. This was felt by the family to be unreasonable, and besides, living in the middle of a public campground was not considered an Algonquin Park ideal location. So with a heavy heart, the Taylors gave up the lease, and in the fall of 1987 they were ordered to remove anything of value, and old Shauna Lodge was burned to the ground. For a while, the remains of the telephone company box could still be seen in Ida's lilac bushes and a few of her roses in what was once her back garden. I hope you've enjoyed these stories about life and what it was like for some of the other permanent residents who at one time lived in Algonquin Park. And as always, you can find all kinds of pictures and information on www.algonquinparkheritage.com. Until next time...